0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Weiner. Later in the show, remember the Brooks Brothers riot? That was when a Republican mob attacked the vote counting in Miami in 2020 and succeeded in stopping it. In retrospect, it looks sort of like a rehearsal for January 6th. Chris Lehman will comment, He's D.C. bureau chief for the nation. But first, should Bernie run in 2024? Bhaskar Sunkara says yes. That's coming up in a minute. Who should be the Democratic nominee in 2024? Bhaskar Sunkara says it should be Bernie Sanders. Bhaskar is president of the nation, founding editor of Jacobin, and author of the book The Socialist Manifesto he's also been a columnist for the guardian us edition he's written for the new york times vox and the washington post boscar welcome back thanks for having me john i appreciate it well the new conventional wisdom is that joe biden has a lot of advantages as the candidate in 2024 he just signed into law the most far-reaching climate policies in our history he's expanded jobs and health care, he's forgiven student debt, and he's the incumbent. And the likely Republican nominee, Donald Trump, is looking weaker and more problematic for the Republicans every day. What do you think about Biden's re-election chances? I think, and I've
1: actually been more bullish on Biden's re-election chances than I think most people. I think if he's healthy, if he's able to run, if he wants to run, if uh, I, I think he'll more likely than not get reelected. Uh, the midterms are a different story. Uh, a lot depends on the state of the economy. a lot depends on whether the recent decline or beginning of the decline in inflation continues. But I do think it's been a strong few months for Biden. and I do think there's certain obvious advantages that a sitting president has. Um, And I I definitely would not dispute that Biden, if healthy, if able and willing to run, would be the strongest uh, choice for the Democratic Party in 2024.
0: Well, of course, the nation endorsed uh, Bernie. Bernie played a unique and really indispensable role in the recent history of the left in America. Please remind us.
1: It really was an incredible story. In 2015, actually, before he announced his run, Bernie went to the nation's offices and discussed with editorial board members and others um, a potential run. And it was clear, the advice was clear, he should run in Democratic primaries. He was already leaning in that direction. Obviously, other groups were pushing him in that, that direction. But I don't think anyone expected that he would play a role transforming American politics if you look at his initial announcement speech, uh, which came quite late in eight, late April 2015, he was speaking to less than a dozen reporters. You know, yeah. he, he just kind of well, with the air of uh, uh, a guy who just had something unimportant to say. He just announced his run. He fielded a couple questions and he walked back to work. you know, It, it had very really little fanfare. It, it wasn't until the summer when the big rallies started to emerge, it was clear that there was something really unique here. I know I was a member of the Democratic Socialists of America's draft Bernie campaign before his announcement. And even for me, my goal was for him to finish second. I, I thought he was going to be in a race with O'Malley for second place. Hmm. Um, obviously, we got a bit greedy when we saw that he had real potential and could possibly be beat hillary clinton but there was that run and then his his of course more recent run in 2020 where he actually had front runner status for for a few weeks that i think really played a major role opening up a third camp in american politics telling people a- alienated with the democratic party alienated with politics as usual That there was a real anti establishment alternative. And that alternative, of course, wasn't Trumpism, but it was something else, something uh, real,
0: uh, our own unique American version of social democracy. And among the other things that Bernie introduced to America was a new system of campaign financing. He invented the email blast where you ask hundreds of thousands of people to give five, 10, $20. We get these now every day, but. Bernie created that so that uh, candidates didn't have to rely completely on wealthy donors
1: yeah I mean I think that that there was definitely experiments before Howard Dean campaign and, and Obama's campaign to some degree um lots of others but I think Bernie really understood that his advantage was having a base of young people who didn't have a lot of money but definitely had enthusiasm definitely had Cultural influence definitely had the ear of even older family members. If you looked at his whole Latino outreach strategy in the last election, a lot of it was built around, you know, talk to your TO about Bernie. Um, and, and I think that that worked quite, quite well. So he had that huge advantage. And it was just a strange thing that the campaign of a 70 something year old man became uh, a youth movement. In, in essence, and obviously, that pointed to some of the weakness of Bernie later on too. That he wasn't able to expand the demographics of his uh, campaign, and people often interpret this in racial terms that Bernie wasn't able to win black voters. Is really just he was unable to win the older voters who were the base um, of the the Democratic party and in democratic party primaries in many states like that's disproportionately black voters but it it was older voters of all of all races because his base was really um these younger voters who were very enthusiastic about common sense social democratic solutions you know people are are looking out upon a job market that isn't working for them they're looking out upon um insurance they can't afford and a fine they'll have to pay if they're not insured and they're I think the Bernie message, as simple as it was, uh, really resonated with people.
0: In a lot of ways, Bernie could give the same speech in 2024 that he gave in 2016 and 2020. Income inequality has deepened. Too many people are working at starvation wages. Healthcare in America is is the worst of any system in the developed world. Our campaign finance system is a crime. Uh, Public colleges and universities should be free. The biggest problems in America are caused by the greed of the billionaire class, Uh, but America is built on fairness, and we need to start by taxing the rich to help anybody else. It's just as true now as it was in 2016, or really when he started in politics in the 70s.
1: It's a timeless message, because I think it's the same reason why the common sense appeal of socialism, it hasn't gone away, even after the manifold defeats and failures of the 20th century, because it's rooted in something objective. It's rooted in the fact that this system is built on exploitation. It's built on inequalities.
0: Bernie's message could be the same in 2024 that it's been his for the last, every time he's ever run for office, but hasn't Bernie's moment passed he did his thing he was magnificent he transformed American politics but that was then and we're looking forward to 2024.
1: well I think that Bernie will know whether it's a time to run again if Biden is strong if Biden's willing to run again is Biden's willing to continue to be cooperative with progressives and some of their legislative priorities as at various times during his first term, he's shown a willingness to be, then Bernie will not run. And he'll figure out how to push Biden and help shape a national agenda through his very unique position. Um, Biden, especially early on, in his term, really treated Bernie like a junior member of a coalition government. You know, Bernie was was the face of a lot of initiatives and other things. And I think Bernie will know whether or not he has enough leverage on the inside or whether he'll have to mount another run to to get that leverage. Uh, I find it unlikely that he would run if Biden seems like he's going to run and if Biden is not um, expecting a challenger.
0: Isn't he saying right now that if Biden runs, he will not enter the primaries? Yeah. And I think that's a
1: safe bet that that if the Democrats are not going to have a contested primary, that might be all the better. I would gladly vote for for uh, Biden if I was in a swing state for a re-election. I think he's done done enough to warrant warrant that support. But there's still a lot of speculation.
0: But if there is an open primary for whatever reason is bernie the right person to deliver this message right now in 2024 i think he's going to be 83 assuming he's running for president to be elected which he always says his term would end when he was 88 the left has a lot of talented younger people he of course opened the door for them starting of course with aoc isn't it time for the next generation to bring this message I think the necessity
1: of Bernie owes to the power of his message in 2016 and 2020, but also to his failures. So he's transformed a lot of the rhetoric of American politics, but his broader initiatives like our revolution have failed. He has really inspired lots of young people to run for office, but none of these people have won anywhere beyond deep blue districts. AOC is a national level media and cultural figure at a discursive level, a political figure at a national level, but she is not in a conventional sense, a politician capable of winning at a national level. The same goes for every single member of the squad. The same goes for many of our candidates in the democratic socials of America. I think, you know, these. a lot of these people are quite talented, but they need to focus on building the type of rhetoric and the type of message that can reach beyond deep blue districts. And I think Bernie is unique on the left in being able to be competitive at the national
0: level. In your piece in atthenation.com, you argue that Bernie should run in the primaries. That's not the same as arguing that he should be president.
1: Well, I think Bernie should be uh, president. Whether he wins the primaries and wins the general election is up to the American American people. I certainly would vote for him in both. Obviously, we know that there's something structurally wrong with American democracy. We know there's something wrong with the Senate. There's something wrong with the power of the courts. And we know that any progressive agenda will run against the hard rock of not just finance, but the U.S. Senate. So obviously, structural reform is an important part of that. But first, you need a real majority to galvanize people in order to bring about any sort of change like that. I think Bernie has the potential to get to this magical 60 percent sort of majority of of Americans that we need uh, behind a program. I mean, this sounds ludicrous, um, you know, given how polarized American politics are. But we just have to look at examples in different countries. We have to look at the examples built by AMLO, for example, in Mexico, building a kind of broad, national, popular base, starting from a more left-wing and laborist base and then broadening out, whether you agree with the details of his policies or not. You know, I, I think that that's that's, that's really something. Um, you could look at the example of FDR in the United States, building a New Deal coalition, wielding together both ethnic coalitions, coalitions of Black uh, workers, coalitions of newly unionized workers, and creating the modern Democratic Party. We need this sort of transformational president. We can't have the Democratic Party be 51% losers for the rest of our lives. And I'm I'm, I'm afraid of that outcome. And that's why I think that we need really something different, something more populist. And I think Bernie at the moment is our best messenger for that.
0: And of course, in a lot of ways, the biggest problem in american politics is trump's base in the white working class we need someone who can overcome that since their interests lie with other members of the working class who are people of color bernie certainly understands that can he achieve that
1: yeah i think it's not just a white working class it's also if you look at poll numbers among uh, hispanics have have leaned to, more towards the Republican Party than, than before. Um, I think there's a lot of Black workers that might not just be motivated to turn out if they keep turning out as the base, the bedrock of the Democratic Party, but they feel like they're not getting enough. So I think Bernie has this message that I think can win a majority of Americans, but it won't just be a magical process of you snap your fingers, you say the right things, and you mobilize a new coalition. It will take a lot of long-term organizational work. What I worry sometimes is that on the left, uh, we are a little bit too focused on building deeper ties with our own base on activist projects and whatever else. And there's not even attempts. Most of them, of course, would fail uh, to organize white workers and others just disconnected from the political process over a long-term period. You could say what you will about the failures of various projects during the New Left um, era in the 1960s to do just that, or later on efforts to industrialize workplaces to do that. But at least they were attempts to, to bridge this historic problem that we've had in the United States. And I think we need, we need more action. We need more things like that. Uh, I don't want to sound completely voluntaristic, but there was something very voluntaristic about Bernie's leap to decide to run in 2015. And I think we just need more chances like that and more experimentation to, to really win.
0: Bhaskar Sunkara wrote about Bernie in 2024 for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Bhaskar, thanks for talking with us today. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. 20 years before the January 6th attack on the Capitol, a Republican mob attacked a central hub of government operations, claiming the vote count in the presidential election that year was fraudulent and trying to reverse the results. And that was a Republican effort long before Donald Trump. For that history, we turn to Chris Lehman. He's DC bureau chief for the nation. He's also the former editor of the Baffler and the New Republic. He's been DC correspondent for the New York Observer, and he's held positions at New York Magazine, Washington Post, Book World, and Newsday. He's the author most recently of the book, The Money Cult, Capitalism, Christianity, and the Unmaking of the American Dream. Chris Lehman, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be here as always. Well, what was the event 20 years ago that looked something like January 6th?
2: Yeah, it was the protracted Aftermath of the deadlocked two thousand presidential vote, where Florida was not yet declared officially for either George W. Bush or Al Gore, there were all of these crazy irregularities in the Florida balloting. There was the notorious butterfly ballot that turned, you know, one district that was heavily Democratic into a. Uh, I think a majority for Pat Buchanan, you know, <laughs> who was running as a third party right winger. Things were crazy. <laughs> and uh, both political campaigns for Bush and Gore sent legal teams down to Florida, sent, you know, official spokesmen. And as is often the case, uh, the conservative side had a more bellicose approach to tactics and nice,
0: nice way of putting it. <laughs>
2: and unleashed a group of uh, young political operatives to disrupt what was what had happened was the balloting in Miami Dade County had been moved from its official site to a another government building for the sake of what they dearly hoped was sort of peace and quiet. And it turned out that this itself was an inflammatory thing and uh, the right started to raise suspicions about chicanery behind the scenes. And uh, so they basically got a mob, um, I think of around a hundred political operatives to go up to the floor in this building where the votes were being reviewed. And, you know, create an uproar and disrupt the proceedings. Um, and,
0: and, and what was their ostensible rationale for challenging rationale, the vote? You know,
2: well, the official rationale was the same thing you heard from the right wing mobs outside of the Michigan voting centers or the Georgia voting centers in 2020, that they wanted to exert citizen scrutiny over, you know, a corrupt balloting process and make sure that every vote was counted in You know, it is important to kind of underline in contrasting these two events that in two thousand there there were legitimate concerns about the propriety of ballot counting, and you know it was a a hard fought race. There were the outcome was much more in doubt, in short, than it was in twenty twenty, and I think that did help to fuel. Everyone understood that the stakes of this particular. Vote count in this place and time was the American presidency. So, yeah, there was basically uh, I,
0: a tie in the right. electoral votes that had been reported. Florida, being a very big state with a strong Democratic base in Miami Dade County, was right. going to be the decisive event in determining the election, as you say. And so the Republicans organized, you called it a mob. What did they call how how was it called by in Republican well,
2: circles? Well, the, the uh you know, the sort of puckish pet name um that Republicans themselves adopted for it was the Brooks Brothers riot, which is interesting sort of iconography on the face of yes, it. Because, yes, yes, because you know the, the juxtaposition there is you know, people wearing Brooks Brothers suits don't tend to riot at the <laughs> in our popular imagination, though when it comes to suppressing the vote, um <laughs> people who do riot and actually prevent uh, people from having their votes counted, do tend to be white dudes of a Brooks Brothers social background, let's just say.
0: So they claimed they wanted to to oversee, watch, observe mm-hmm. the vote count to make sure every vote was being counted. What was the actual strategy behind this disruptive attack?
2: You know, I interviewed um, a couple of participants uh, for the piece I wrote for the nation, and It was a two-pronged strategy. One, you know, there was a big legal team on the ground that James Baker, the former Secretary of State under the first George Bush, uh, was orchestrating. And then there was a, a sort of, for lack of a better term, a street contingent uh, that Roger Stone was trade in. Um.
0: Well, Roger Stone, that's a
2: familiar name. Yeah, it does ring a bell, doesn't it? <laughs> he, um, of course, also claimed a prominent role in pulling together the January 6th mob um, and coordinated infamously with the Oath Keepers who were part of a security detail on that day and the Proud Boys. The thing to be careful about with Roger Stone is he is a megalomaniac and he takes credit for a lot of things. So he retrospectively claims that the Brooks Brothers riot and basically the Brooks Brothers riot created enough attention and adverse publicity for the Gore-Lieberman team and his view that it helped swing the presidency toward George W. Bush when Catherine Harris stupidly declared (laughs) that uh, the recount... Basically, what they were trying to do was to cease the recount because they understood that's the paradox, right? Is an actual uninterrupted and sober recount in Miami-Dade probably would have gone into the Gore column. So, you know, the the real strategy was to disrupt, delay, get to the point where Catherine Harris would announce that the recount would be suspended, kick it over to the courts, which This is all what happened. And ultimately, after rapid successive court challenges, the the case went to the Supreme Court, which infamously decided in Bush v. Gore, on this one occasion only, that the 14th Amendment (laughs) guaranteed someone the right to be elected president. And and then
0: we had the Bush presidency. There's Um, one big question at the very beginning of this. Yes. Why did the ballot counters in Miami-Dade County, stop counting the ballots when these Brooks Brothers so-called mob was started pounding on their front door?
2: Well, I think they were just sort of blindsided. I don't think, you know, anyone expected, I mean, you kind of saw the same dynamics again in Michigan and Georgia in 2020. You know, these are people who are focusing on a very important and tedious task in a very high stakes environment. And, um, you know, just to, to be besieged like this, was discombobulating, and and eventually, I think you know they started to resume. And then one of the um, officials, who's now a Florida State Democratic representative, but was then an election official in Miami Dade, he was actually it says he was hounded out of the building and was threatened verbally by the the rioters after he left. And he got home and turned on the TV and saw on the news that. Lo and behold, uh, they had stopped the recount in Miami Dade. Again, it worked.
0: <laughs> and was this an event where you know a violent mob is pounding on the door, demanding to be let in, and they fight the police for hours? And
2: no, it wasn't. It wasn't that. Brooks Brothers rioters today, you know, claimed that there was no violence, there was no threat of violence. It was just chanting. It was you know creating a lot of noise and disruption and again this other election official testified otherwise it's a tricky thing because a lot of these you know people were taking part in the riot were young republican political operatives who then went on to have they were rewarded with careers in the republican establishment so they very much want the
0: narrative to be that it was not violent that it was not improper it does seem like the election authorities did not call the police yeah, they just no, got they're... scared and left
2: yeah, or yeah, or just figure it out that we're making trouble by doing this, we'd better stop. Yeah. <laughs> as near yeah. as I can tell. There were sheriffs out, out in front of the building, but they were never called in.
0: In my introduction, I said this was long before Donald Trump on January 6th. Did Donald Trump have anything to do with this?
2: No, though what's an... This is not to wax conspiratorial or anything, but over on, I mentioned before, James Baker captained the legal team, and on his legal team, three of the voting attorneys who were aggressively, you know, drafting legal documents to challenge the vote uh, were future Supreme Court justices, two of whom were appointed by Donald Trump, Neil Gorsuch and um, Laura Coney Barrett, Uh, The third one was Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice
0: John Roberts. Um, Let me just pause here for a moment and contemplate this fact. Three people who today sit on the Supreme Court were lawyers for the George W. Bush campaign trying to stop the vote in Florida in 2000. That is a remarkable fact. It
2: certainly is. And among other things, you know, just recently, John Roberts gave a speech, again, soberly, you know, warning against the dangers of the Supreme Court being dragged into politics. And, I mean, here here is a big chunk of the conservative majority of the present court, very much in politics. And John Roberts himself started out in the Reagan administration as an attorney devoted to basically suppressing voting rights. Um, So it's a very (laughs) legible through line that, you know, what's frustrating is you know an event like January 6 happens and it seems like this outlying story this freakish occurrence and there is a long history uh here of mobilizing you know powerful influential legal minds strategists and con- professional political consultants all on the same page with the same end and it did produce a very decisive moment in our political history that, you know, was forcefully swung um, to the right.
0: One other small historical footnote. Roger Stone has a tattoo.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> he certainly does. It is a uh, head of Richard Nixon, a, sort of in between his shoulders on his back. Uh, and is
0: this like a one-inch Tattoo? It's it's funny. I I went back in my because
2: I had <laughs> misremembered it as a much more. It's it's just a head, so it's it's significant. I would say it's about I don't know. I haven't seen it in person. Uh, <laughs> I would say four inch tattoo, and it it's is um, you know homage. You know he had it made when Richard Nixon was a, a sort of excoriated fi- figure, even in the Republican Party after Watergate and his resignation, and Roger Stone. Having the Street Fighter kind of sensibility, you know, embraced it. And uh, I think that's a big part of why Roger Stone and Donald Trump get along so
0: well. I just want to now get specific about the similarities and the differences from January 6th. The most striking thing is the similarity of the goal stop the vote count in a way. That would throw the event, the election, into the courts where Republican judges could be counted on to make the Republican candidate the president. That was the strategy in two thousand, kicked off by the Brooks Brothers riot,
2: and in two, thousand twenty, you had exactly the same strategy. You you know, we've seen in the January sixth hearings that Sidney Powell and these other you know legal advisors to Trump's Sort of scorched earth effort to overturn the 2020 election results were, you know, just pleading with, you know, their allies in Congress during the certification of the presidential vote to just draw draw it out a little longer so that um, the the mob besieging the Capitol could create enough havoc that you would have to stop the vote count or you the certification rather and. Uh, Then you would kick it over to the congressional delegations from all the states, where they felt they they could make the Republican advantage result in a
0: Trump victory, Um, or else or else there would be constitutional chaos because Congress had not met its constitutional responsibility, and the court would be called on to decide what to do about this. Right, and Um, we would get two thousand all over again.
2: Yeah, I, I do think that was a big part of the strategy. Though I do, again, based on the January six hearings, their first approach was to try to move through the congressional delegations.
0: But the idea that chaos around the vote count could lead to new paths to a Republican victory that hadn't been tried before—they tried in uh, at the Brooks brothers' riot, and as you say, they won. Of course, the biggest difference is. It didn't work on January 6th. Right. Uh, it didn't right. work in two ways. First of all, the police showed up and fought for right. two hours and 28 minutes <clears throat> until Trump called off the mob, and Congress, and the pr- pr- particular the Senate, and in particular Vice President Pence, were determined to return as soon as the building was secured and, quote, finish their job. Those are two... Really big differences.
2: Yeah, agreed. Though um, you know, I think it is important to note that the Capitol police were badly outnumbered, and Trump made a point of um, not calling in the National Guard and not calling in the Army. Yes, and had also, you know, um, appointed you know cronyist people to head the military right prior to January six. So,
0: That's one other big difference. The Brooks Brothers aspect of the 2000 riot, it's mm-hmm. it's a phony idea that these are bankers and and uh, right. uh, stockbrokers. But these were not people ta- wearing tactical combat gear, right. bearing weapons and organized in combat style units right. at the right. front. They we're
2: not paramilitaries. They we're not
0: paramilitary. Um, well, so that's a big change in Republican time. strategy.
2: Yeah, and and also yeah, the the entire sort of makeup of the Republican base over that time, you know, back in two thousand, um, the the sort of hardcore of the party was well off white business people, um, and in two thousand twenty, you see a very different transformation of the GOP base, including QAnon figures, including you know all of these sort of extremist I mentioned earlier the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, um, you know, overtly racist and white nationalists and fascists. I, I, I and organized as militias. Yes, exactly. Made, you know, that, the thing about January 6th is, yes, it did ultimately fail, but it, you know, we've seen in, in uh, the January 6th hearings how terrifyingly close it came to actually succeeding. You know, they're not letting up. There's actually just a uh, recent survey by the website 538 has found that 60 percent of Americans in the 2022 election cycle will have election deniers on their ballots. And that has serious repercussions looking ahead. Uh, some of these people are candidates to be secretaries of states and swing states come 2024. They could easily, especially if the Supreme Court issues a A bad ruling in the upcoming independent legislature um, case, they could easily swing an election um, for the Republican candidate in 2024.
0: Chris Lehman, he's the nation's D.C. bureau chief. He wrote about the Brooks Brothers riot and the ways it set the stage for the January 6th insurrection at thenation.com. Thank you, Chris. This was great. Thank you, John.